service. This episode is brought to you in iHeart3D Audio. For maximum effect, headphones are recommended. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she lived a life unlike any other. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Nine would be the days she spent riding the rails on a cross-country tour of Canada with a hodgepodge of rock and roll bands and some unexpectedly illicit treats. Another four would be the number of weeks she spent 2,000 miles from home with no money, no safety net, and no plane ticket back to where she belonged while the gritty city of Chicago ate away at her hippie dream. Ten more would be the number of girls she passed backstage at the Fillmore as they desperately waited in line for a bathroom tryst with a certain headlining act. And four would be the number of years she had left to live when she fled her home state of Texas for San Francisco for the last time, inspired by onstage outlaws and encouraged by a car full of excitable freaks, all totaling 27. On this, our first episode of season three, Illicit Treats, The School of Hard Knocks, Bathroom Trysts, and Janis Joplin, walking a winding path to liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. July, 1970, somewhere in the wilds of the Great White North. Phil Lesh, bass player for the Grateful Dead, craned his neck to look out the door of this small room aboard the Canadian National Railway train. He heard noises coming from the hallway, banging, moaning, growling, a mangled, incomprehensible voice like words had been thrown in a warring blender and set on liquefy. Phil craned his neck as long as it could stretch and squinted his eyes from behind his oversized glasses. He couldn't believe what he saw. It was some sort of multi-headed hydra or a scraggly mutt, Cerberus itself, just lumbering along, losing its balance, drooling, snarling, snorting, banging from wall to wall as the train rocketed through another stretch of lonesome Canadian countryside. It got closer and closer to Phil's room and he started to panic. He was alone and he wasn't about to step out into the corridor with some unidentified subterranean creature from hell, closing the gap between his six foot plus lanky frame and certain death. And then the creature made a sound that he recognized. I need a lobotomy, it said, in one of those trademark California hippie drawls. Phil squinted his eyes tighter and then took his glasses off and rubbed his face with the back of his fist. Glasses back on his face, he looked back out to the corridor. Was it? Could it be? Shit, it wasn't some hell-spawned canine or slithering serpent after all. It was his bandmate, Jerry Garcia, shoulder to shoulder with Rick Danko, bassist for the band. They were crawling on all fours like a couple of goddamn lunatics, which of course they were. Phil shook his head to ward off the huge headache he could feel coming from a mile away. He cursed the three-gallon bottle of Canadian Club that they were all drinking from the night before. This must be what drunk felt like, Phil thought. 
Waterlogged, heavy-headed, nauseous, blurry, being stuck on a moving train, it wasn't helping. He was drunk, wasted, but alcohol wasn't the Grateful Dead's main attraction. Oodles of Osley's finest tabs from the depths of a San Franciscan acid factory, now that was more their speed. This booze business, shit, that was a different trip altogether. They all drank so much on this Canadian tour that they ran out of alcohol and had to make an unscheduled stop in Saskatoon. Some tiny liquor store that was like a mirage come to life. And they passed a hat around, slapped $800 down on the counter and bought the place out. Phil, Jerry, and the rest of the dead were getting a crash course and getting ridiculously hammered courtesy of whatever this tiny Saskatoon outpost had on its shelves. And it was all her fault. She had gotten them drunk. She passed the bottle around. She told them to drink up. She was armed with her hip flask in one hand and a handle of Southern Comfort in the other. You planning on having a relationship with that glass? She yelled, the long red feather boa in her hair flapping and waving with each friendly insult. You don't sip whiskey in the morning. You knock it all back. Fuck off with that hippie bullshit. Sipping is for happy hour, man. Drink up. It was her fault. Her, Janis Joplin. The high priestess of the Bay Area scene, the world-weary voice behind Big Brother and the Holding Company, then the Cosmic Blues Band, and now the Full Tilt Boogie Band, the counterculture's queen, Pearl, in the flesh, the raspy-throated raw, genuine blues singer for the psychedelic age. Janice was headlining this tour through Canada. She and her band were paid 75 grand by promoters to lead the charge. The thing they called the Festival Express, AKA Woodstock on wheels. The groups didn't just play shows throughout the vast expanse of Canada during the summer of 1970. They also rode together on a locomotive consisting of 12 cars, two bar cars, and a luxurious dining car. It was a lineup that included not only the dead and the band, but also Buddy Guy, New Riders of the Purple Sage, and Delaney and Bonnie. And the tour was a surefire hit, but it was plagued from the beginning. And their first stop, Montreal, was canceled before they even arrived. And the show was scheduled on the same day as St. Jean-Baptiste, and the city feared that it was too much of a good thing. Vancouver, which was supposed to be their final stop, was canceled before the train left the station. Concert promoters couldn't come to an agreement with the city on a location. Crowds throughout the country balked at the ticket prices, which ranged from eight bucks in advance up to 16 bucks at the door. Kids had gotten into Woodstock for free the year before, so why not now? Why not Canada? Outside the Toronto show, kids handed out leaflets encouraging people to boycott. They demanded that the show be free. They accused the bands of price gouging. They rushed the gates, climbed the fences, hauled themselves up on top of the roofs of nearby buildings to avoid paying to get inside. The ticketless mob grew to 2,500 strong. Canadian police on horseback swarmed the grounds and attempted to keep the peace. Everyone got so nervous that they sent Jerry Garcia out to negotiate. Jerry stepped up to the mic and pleaded with the fans to keep their cool. Just give us a half hour of coolness while we figure this out, he asked. And true to his word, 30 minutes later, festival organizers came back to the stage and announced a free show that the bands would play the next day in Coronation Park. The near riotous masses were pleased. The whole tour was over in a little over a week. It may have had more lows than highs. And the one high that everyone could rely on, however, was Janice. Janice was always a high, no matter what city they were in, no matter how drunk she'd got them all the night before. She'd wind her right leg up, bring it back, suspended in the air. Her drummer, Clark Pearson, would watch that leg like a hawk, 
And then she'd kick her leg out in front of her, and the band on cue would rock it into Crybaby, the Garnett Mims R&B classic that she made her own over and over again every night. The dead loved to watch Janice perform from the wings, especially Ron Pigpen McKernan, who was still in love with her. But what the dead didn't like was when Janice got them drunk. They weren't a beer band, man. She said she was trying to liberate them, set them free, pull them off the same old trip they'd been taking for years, and put them on a different trip for once. A different track, head towards a new destination. Destination, drunk. But the dead had more than a few tricks up their sleeves. They were highly skilled in the fine arts of dosing and revenge. On the last night of the tour in Calgary, the dead made Janice a birthday cake. Told them it wasn't for her birthday. Her birthday was back in January when she turned 27. Whatever, the cake was the thing. But it wasn't just any cake. Sure, it was made from flour, eggs, milk, and sugar, the usual. But it had a secret ingredient, the Grateful Dead's special ingredient. And they laced the cake with enough LSD to send Ken Kesey to the moon and back and offered Janice up a big slice. Here you go, Janice, they told her. No hard feelings about the getting us drunk thing. And Janice took a big bite of the acid cake while the dead attempted to muffle their laughs. A member of the Calgary Police Department happened by, and they offered him a slice too. It's Janice's birthday, they exclaimed, even though it wasn't, and the cop couldn't say no. And before the slice kicked in, Janice looked around at the motley crew of musicians, roadies, managers, friends, lovers, pranksters. They were her people. She was one of them. None of them would ever think of leaving her, doing her wrong, of ridiculing her unlike those who had done her wrong over the years. Janis Joplin was sitting on top of the world. She was far away from the pain of Port Arthur, the desperation of Chicago. But before long, this train would run out of track. The tour would end and Janis would be back in Larkspur and back to reality. And Janis didn't know it at that moment as she took another bite. It was the last birthday cake she'd ever eat and the last tour of the Canadian countryside she'd ever take. She'd never see Toronto again, or Winnipeg, or Calgary. In just three months' time, Janis Joplin would be dead. Peter Albin was the first one to notice the sweater. It was cashmere. It was conspicuous, that sweater. It was August in Chicago, and who wore a cashmere sweater in August in Chicago? But even more conspicuous was the fact that Peter had never seen that sweater on Janis Joplin before. She didn't even strike him as a cashmere sweater kind of gal, and yet there she was, reclined in her seat, laughing her huge unbridled guffaw laugh, tapping free the ash at the end of her cigarette, throttling the neck of a near-empty bottle of SoCo, wearing that fucking cashmere sweater. She certainly didn't bring it with her on the flight from San Francisco to Chicago. Their band, Big Brother and the Holding Company, had flown into O'Hare with next to nothing besides their gear and the clothes on their backs. No suitcases overflowing with extra pairs of shirts. No money in their pockets. No place to stay. They didn't even have a manager anymore, just a jet plane in the rear view. A jet plane that took them halfway across the country and dumped them in the middle of the windy city for a month-long residency at a club called Mother Blues on North Wells in the heart of Old Town. Mother Blues, of course, that was it. Peter remembered Mother Blues, that was where he saw the cashmere sweater. 
It was draped over the back of a chair in Lorraine Blue's apartment. Lorraine Blue, the woman who owned Mother Blues, the woman who was Mother Blues, and whose apartment next door to the club doubled as a rooming house for the musicians who passed through and the street kids who never left. And they called her Blue. She was legendary in Old Town, mythical even. And they said she divorced her husband and went into business to support her kids since her now ex wasn't exactly coming through in the provider department. And they said she poured the concrete of the building herself right in the very spot where the rising moon had once stood before it suspiciously went up in flames. And they said she raised 400 kids in that apartment next door to the club, the club that bore the name that everyone called her. And like a hard-boiled Chicago blues song, Lorraine Blue was tough, caring, but careful, kind, but skeptical. She took one look at Janice and the boys when they blew into town, and their patchouli stink and loose California lingo wafting from every armpit and mouth, and she thought, what in the fuck is with these California hippies? Chicago would be the band's wake-up call, and Lorraine Blue would do the dialing. Peter knew that Janice had stolen the sweater. He was sure of it. One minute it was in the apartment and the next it was wrapped around Janice's body. But whether it belonged to Blue or to one of the 400 children who came and went, it didn't matter. They couldn't afford to fuck this up, to make enemies. They were already making enemies, looking the way they looked, talking the way they talked. And they were close enough to the edge as it was. No money, no prospects, no crowds, and no way to get back home. And the residency was all they had. Even if the promoter had given up hope and had stopped paying them regularly, even if they had to hire a girl slathered in day-glow paint and glitter and wearing a saran-wrapped turban and leotard to dance provocatively while they played just to get asses off the streets and inside. The way Peter figured it, if they started lifting stuff that wasn't theirs, started making a bigger scene than the one they made by simply rolling into town, they could jeopardize the whole thing and then they'd be on the street, on their asses. San Francisco was a long way down. Sure, Big Brother and The Holding Company were a big deal in their hometown. They were one of the big bands leading the charge in the San Francisco scene, a scene that included the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane, but it was the summer of 1966 and that scene hadn't opened wide just yet. So Chicago was a hard sell. People looked at them funny, made comments about their long hair and the way they dressed. The band thought it would be different, that it wouldn't be an uphill battle, but it was a huge uphill battle and the hill was a goddamn mountain. Chicago didn't know dick about Big Brother, and Chicago didn't care about Big Brother either. Chicago was mecca for the blues. You could get knee-deep in it there. Muddy Wolf, Buddy Guy, Jimmy Reed, John Lee Hooker, and my namesakes, Little Walter Jacobs and Otis Rush, but I digress. And no one taking a one-way flight from San Francisco in August of 1966 wanted to get knee-deep in Chicago blues more than Janis Joplin. All the other female singers in San Francisco were on a Joan Baez trip folk singers, social protesters, but Janice was Bessie Smith in a sea of Jones. She sang the blues like she had lived the blues, like she lived the raw nerves of each line. And she had lived it. She had lived in towns that didn't want her, surrounded by people who rejected her, called her names and looked down on her. Even in San Francisco, the very place that she was helping to put on the musical map, she was a woman in a man's man's world, a booze-guzzling beatnik in a hotbed of acid heads. She'd been used and duped, lied to and victimized. She came from a Texas oil town, Port Arthur, that was as conservative as she was liberal, as backwards as she was progressive. She had to succeed. She had to put the past in the rearview mirror. If she made her way back to San Francisco a failure, then it was only a matter of time before she wound up back in Port Arthur again, busted and broke. And for all she knew, it would be the last chance she had blown. In Chicago, liberation didn't come easy. Chicago was in a big, friendly jam session where she and the boys rubbed elbows with the guys with names like Muddy and Sunny Boy and Slim and Wolf. 
Chicago was a slog. Chicago was playing your guts out for a few drunk townies gathered around the bar. Chicago was getting raised eyebrows and condescending comments from passers-by on the street. Chicago was getting a coveted review in a local paper only to be called ugly. Chicago was not hip, not hip in the way that Janice and the gang were hip. Chicago was hostile, Chicago was Hatersville. Chicago was the real world that looked at California like its own separate universe of nuts and flakes. And if Chicago wasn't enough, now our own bandmates wanted to get personal. Peter wanted a big confrontation with Janice. She knew it, she could feel it coming. The way he was looking at her and the accusatory questions he was dropping like bait. He wanted to have it out with her about the stupid cashmere sweater that probably didn't really belong to anyone anyways. She could tell it was coming, the lecture, the public flogging, the way all the guys in the band would occasionally take a moment to dress her down. The girl in the group, she was only the fucking lead singer, man. Yeah, I took that stupid sweater, she told him loud enough so that the rest of the band could hear. Her laugh was like a nervous punctuation. She wanted to end the conversation, move on to more pressing matters at hand, but she also recognized how wound up and anxious the whole band was at the moment. She hadn't forgotten about the offer that Paul Rothschild from Electra Records had made her, not the band, not Big Brother, but just her, before they left San Francisco for Chicago. Peter hadn't forgotten either. No one in the band had. No one could forget that Rothschild came directly to Janice behind all of their backs to coax her away from Big Brother and the holding company in order to become the new member of a big blue supergroup he was putting together. It was exactly what she was looking for, an opportunity to get free, but it was a big ask. It meant leaving behind the very group that had put her name on the San Franciscan map. And with Big Brother, she was part of a group, a member of a gang. The guys in Big Brother weren't her backing band, they were equals for better or for worse. She told the band she would think about it, do this Chicago thing, ride out Big Brother a little longer because on some days, she couldn't imagine ever being without them. But on other days, days when they were stuck 2,000 miles away from home with no money and no one to turn to, days when she had to endure the third degree from the bass player for swiping a goddamn cashmere sweater off the back of a lonely chair in Lorraine Blue's apartment, some days, being without the band was all she could think about. Then, she could truly be free. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The line outside the bathroom was at least 10 girls deep. Some had flowers in their hair. Others had flowers painted on their faces. Some wore long hair and long dresses. Some wore tinted glasses and beaded headbands. Some seemed to float like visions in sheer gowns that sprouted wings when they spread their arms out to the side. The bathroom door would open and one of the girls would walk out, a look of bliss or a shock across her face, stuck there with sweat and lust, a look that pulsated in time with the rapid heart palpitations she was experiencing. The next girl in line would sneak into the bathroom and the door would shut slowly behind her and the whole thing would start up again. A man's voice, a woman's voice, some light banging, followed by excessively loud banging, moans, groans, a deep, mannish victory cry, complemented by a high-pitched ecstatic squeal. The girls in line outside the bathroom turned to each other in line, blushed and giggled, ran their fingers in between their knuckles to calm their nerves. They scanned around the hallway to make sure they weren't going to get busted by some rent-a-cop. And as soon as the sounds beyond the door subsided, they would all turn to face the bathroom once more, 
Eyes wide, a hush fell over the group. Then they strained to hear something, anything from inside the bathroom that would continue to fuel the visuals they concocted inside their heads. And they waited for that door to swing wide open once more. It would be their turn soon. It was June 1967 at the Fillmore in San Francisco. And though the Jimi Hendrix experience had just wrapped up the last of their six nights at the hippest of hippie auditoriums, the real place to be was backstage. And the rumors spread quickly throughout the audience as they made their awkward shuffle en masse towards the exits. And the house public address system ushering 3,000 out into the indifferent San Francisco evening with the music of the Blues Magoos as soundtrack. And the backstage opportunity was whispered from ear to ear, girl to girl. Some had dates on their arm and tried not to seem too disappointed when they laughed off the rumor and kept a steady course for the exit. But those who were intrigued stopped in their tracks, verified that the information was valid, and then scanned the auditorium for the most direct route to the secret destination. Backstage, the line never seemed to get shorter or longer. Every time a girl would go into the bathroom, another would appear, eyes darting around, out of breath, like she had just scaled a prison fence to freedom. Is this it? Am I here? Did anyone see me? All ten girls in line were surprised when around the corner came Big Brother and the Holding Company, one of the bands that had opened the show that night. The girls didn't immediately recognize the guys in the band. They all looked like just other nondescript hippie guys from any number of up-and-coming bands. Long hair, thick mutton chops, jeans. It was Janice they recognized. Janice was their city's new star. And they all gasped when they saw her, flanked by these four could-be-anybody San Fran dudes, but didn't care to leave the line. They couldn't lose their place. Janice had a bottle in one hand and a smoke in the other. She never left home without them. If there was a Janice Joplin action figure, the accessories would be a bottle and a smoke. What's going on here? Janice shouted at the girls waiting in line, who in turn were trying to get Janice's attention from where they stood. What's the action, ladies? One of the girls in line, tall, blonde, a thick paisley headband keeping her pigtails in place, spoke up. Jimi Hendrix is in there, she said excitedly. He's handing out quickies as fast as he can. Yeah, another girl piped up. You want in, Miss Joplin? We'll let you cut the line. Cut the line. Miss Joplin. Janice's response echoed down the backstage hallway. A laugh so genuine and resounding that it began low at the bottom of her belly and bounced its way up through her chest and throat and arrived with such confidence and clarity that it literally threw her head back. It was a smoker's laugh, a drinker's laugh, the laugh of a prankster. The guys and Big Brother tapped each other on the arms, had their own little private chuckles, like, hey, can you get a load of that question? Like Janice Joplin is gonna wait in line for Jimi Hendrix? Janice and the boys kept on walking, right past the bathroom, past the line of girls, and out the exit door. Janice hoped that the laugh had been loud enough, emasculating enough, that Jimmy heard it through all the panting and moaning that was surely bouncing around the bathroom tile, loud enough to knock his male ego down a peg. Janice didn't have time for that shit, didn't have time to wait in line so that a rock god, a fabled sex god, could find time to make her another notch on his bedpost. Sure, Janice found liberation in sex, but she did it in her way. She called the shots. She didn't wait patiently in some line of submissive bimbos. She'd rather be the one in the bathroom, making the line of submissive male bimbos wait their goddamn turn. She'd fought against type her entire life. At Thomas Jefferson High School in Port Arthur, she took shit from rednecks like Jimmy Johnson. Yes, that Jimmy Johnson, who called her a slut and a whore just because she was different. She wasn't a blockhead like the rest of them. The jocks would toss pennies at her when she walked by in the hallway and when she stood up for herself 
When she came back at them with a loud, fuck all of you motherfuckers, she was the one who got in trouble. And then when she did start hanging out with the boys, the progressive boys who were just as vocal about political and social issues as she was, the slut and horror insults came rushing back. She found no reprieve in college either, where she was voted ugliest man on campus, not even woman, ugliest man. That shit's harsh. Now, Janice and her band, Big Brother and the Holding Company, were opening for Jimi Hendrix, and she was having the last laugh. She was calling the shots. Those shit kickers back in Port Arthur were no doubt apoplectic, which suited her just fine. What would they say if they saw her now? Saw her, Janice Joplin, the low self-esteem kid with bad acne and a red-hot temper. If they saw her taking a hot shit rock star to bed. Take Jim Morrison, for example. She took Jim Morrison to bed because she wanted to do it. She made it happen. She seduced him. But one night after the Doors played the Fillmore, Janice went to dinner with the band. And when they wound up back at her apartment, Janice was brazen about it too. In the middle of the after party, guys from the Doors mingling with guys from Big Brother, and there's Jim's girl, Pam, being shy on the edge of the couch. In the middle of it all, Janice decided to take Jim back to her room for a romp in the sheets. And hey, if Pam wanted him so bad, she could put up a fight. It was Janice's version of the Jimi Hendrix quickie line. No guy told her what to do, no girl did either. And after they'd done the deed and Pam had run off sobbing, Janice rolled over in bed to see Jim laying there with a dumb grin on his face. A grin so big and dumb that it looked painted on. Jim thought he was a bad boy, but Janice knew the truth. She knew Jim was just a dumbass poser who only wanted to be a bad boy. Not to mention a lousy lay. The real bad boys were inspiring. They were creative, they were magnetic, they were outlaws without being outlandish. And they could often be found, of all places, in Texas. The Vulcan Gas Company's small tableaus of liquid were morphing into a large-scale visual stimulus. The colors were swimming around the band members' corduroy pants and Chelsea boots and velvet suit jackets as they hustled gear on stage. For some in the audience, the band didn't even need to be playing. The trippy visuals were enough. The puffs of grass and tabs of LSD made everything entertaining. You could be entertained all night by whatever appeared in front of you as long as you were cool about it, kept it on the down low. Because even though this was Austin in the year 1966, Austin was still in Texas, and Texas was still a long ways away from embracing the burgeoning counterculture movement. The band knew it, they were living proof. They were none other than the 13th floor elevators, and they were playing shows under the radar while out on bail. The elevators dared to challenge the status quo of Texas, and the rednecks of Texas responded. Texas was terrified Psychedelic rock groups threatened the moral fabric of a God-fearing American state, and so Texas would hunt down the elevators, led by the 18-year-old Rocky Erickson, arrest them, broadcast the bus on local television, and make them the enemy of the old-fashioned conservative values. It was a few months earlier, in January of 1966, when the raid happened. The band was hanging out at Tommy Hall's place, talking about their latest rehearsal, arguing over which covers they'd include in their set that week while taking big tokes of killer grass. Tommy was the group's electric jug player, the first and best of his kind, a musical role he had invented and then used to set the elevators apart from everyone else. 
Frat bands like The Wig, The Baby Cakes, and The Fabulous Chevelles. The elevators mic'd up Tommy's old clay whiskey jug, and he would blow these propulsive, ghostly notes that sounded like transmissions from another planet. Tommy was demonstrating some of the new moves he'd created. These double notes that he'd get when he flicked his tongue as he tooted on the jug's top when the door was flung open. Austin police! Then the vice squad was inside, warrant held high for all to see. They found two pounds of marijuana inside, and then even more when they searched the apartments of other band members, including Rockies. The band spent the night at the Travis County Jail before being released on a $1,000 bond. And now they made their moves with stealth, one eye over their shoulder and ear to the ground. Rock shows as guerrilla warfare in 1966, Texas. And the band appeared out of nowhere that particular night and assembled their gear quickly and with surgical precision, so precisely, in fact, that no one in the crowd would have guessed they had all dropped acid on the drive over. And the audience couldn't help but stare at the giant eye hovering above the pyramid that was painted on John Ike Walton's kick drum. An all-seeing eye, the eye of Providence. The eye hypnotized one person in particular, Janice Joplin. Janice was on the bill that night as well, dressed like a conservative Texas square that everyone back home wanted her to be dour black dress and all. She sang lonesome covers of Buffy St. Marie's Codine and Ray Charles's Drown in My Own Tears. She had escaped Texas once already, a poetic journey to the promised land of liberation way out in California, but it was a bummer trip. She returned to her hometown of Port Arthur defeated and skinny and with a meth habit that threatened to kill her. But she knew that Port Arthur was just as deadly for her as shooting meth in San Francisco. So it was a relief when she enrolled in the University of Texas at Austin and crawled out of her oppressive hometown once more. In Austin, she fell in with the like-minded crowd of beatniks, artists, and musicians, the long hairs that would radicalize Texas from the inside out. She brought her guitar to therapy. Her music was her therapy and played shows at folk clubs in Houston and Austin. And then she saw Rocky at the Methodist Student Center Auditorium, standing tall, hair short, looking as respectable as the vice squad wanted him to be. But underneath that facade, Rocky was an outlaw. They were all outlaws. She saw the eye of Providence and she was under its spell. And then Rocky sang, his voice sharp and raw, shrieking and screeching, and she was under his spell. And just like the 13th floor elevators carried out from the Methodist Student Center Auditorium on the wind, Janice would let herself be carried off by a car full of hippies who had driven all the way from San Francisco just to find her. Her old friend, Chet Helms, was putting together a band and thought Janice would be perfect as a singer. So perfect that Chet personally sent a few of his finest freaks on a road trip to track her down. It was like it was fated, like she had been set up to witness Rocky and his band, only to then be transported back to the West Coast where she could become exactly what she had just witnessed in Texas. Be an outlaw, scream, screech, and wail, but do it far away from Texas where the world wasn't ready for that kind of freedom the freedom to sing what you wanted, be who you wanted, and live how you wanted. And this time, she was determined that she wouldn't go back home again. She told herself she wouldn't run into the same problems she'd experienced before. There was a revolution happening out west, a revolution with electric Kool-Aid and Hell's Angels and Beans and Lovins, a revolution that beckoned to her, called her to its center stage where she could leave all the pain behind. In San Francisco, she could be set free. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
right, this episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, Nirvana, Prince, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Cardi B, and many, many more, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland. Or if you have an Echo device, just say, hey Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. The 27 Club is hosted and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll.